Hey, it's Ralph here. Q1 is now closing and it probably didn't go as well as you had hoped, but I'm sure your agency is probably telling you that they crushed it. But in reality, it crushed you. If your agency isn't on the same page as you are, if there's something wrong, but you can't quite put your finger on what that thing is, go on over to tier11.com forward slash apply. It will set you up on a call to show you a better way to look at your business, not just metrics that make us agencies look good, but something that actually moves the needle and makes you more money, acquires more new customers, and ultimately achieves your vision. Head on over to tier11.com forward slash apply today. You're listening to Perpetual Traffic. Hello and welcome to the Perpetual Traffic Podcast. This is your host, Ralph Burns. and This is episode 281. I am here alongside virtually about 2,000 miles away, or now actually about 2,500 miles away because you're in Colorado. <laughs> it's my awesome co-host, Amanda Powell. How are you, Amanda? Doing good. Trying to stay warm, not used to the snow, but we're surviving, I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you and the dog, which was a rough ride out there, what, 14, 15 hours from Austin out to Colorado? Yeah, she's usually pretty good in the car, but she decided to pant in the back seat and stand up for about eight of the original 11 hour drives. So mm -hmm. that's about how my Saturday went. <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah, a little medication uh, that was supposed to put her down, but made her go up. Yeah, we got the opposite effect from the doggy Benadryl that we gave her. So uh, yeah. She didn't like that too much or definitely was happy when we let her out at some rest stops and gave her a a good run, but didn't work too well because she just get right back in the car and pant over my shoulder for the next four to five hours. <laughs> it's crazy. It can go either way. I was right? telling you the story of we give our, our then like three-year-old Benadryl before a six-hour flight going out to San Francisco, I think it was. And I don't think he ever like sat down after takeoff. He was like running up and down the aisles. So it has the opposite effect. Definitely test it out at home before you go travel, whether it's a dog or a kid. <laughs> there you go. There's your medical advice here on episode 281 from Ralph and Amanda. You're welcome. <laughs> but we're going to be uh, talking about some other really interesting things and maybe even giving some social media advice here yeah. on this episode because we've been wanting to talk about this for, I don't know, ever since the movie came out. Mm -hmm. And Amanda and I were sort of joking about it. We both didn't really want to watch it. <laughs> when it first came out, we're like, oh my God, I don't really want to know what... This whole thing, it's its the movie, and I'm not going to say it's a documentary because it's really more of a movie. It's definitely it's, more of a movie. Yeah. yeah. It, it, uh, and we're talking about why we think it's a movie and, and more so like a lot of the things that were mentioned in it and a lot of the beliefs about social media can be taken a lot of different ways. I think on its face level, the... the social dilemma. <laughs> the social dilemma... <laughs> I was like, I was about to say like the social meteors. No, that's not. The name of the movie. <laughs> meteors. <laughs> we should rename it. Yeah, the social meteors. So the social dilemma takes on Facebook primarily, but all social media yeah. in general and casts our favorite social media platform, at least if you've been a listener here, Perpetual Traffic for any number of episodes, casts that, that social media channel not in a very good light. But you, obviously, the listener should definitely decide. Definitely check it out. It's over on Netflix. It just came out, what, in September? Yeah, Amanda? just a month or so ago. Not very long ago. 
So I guess we're not that great at avoiding it. No, <laughs> we no, both watched the, it now. <laughs> yeah, it's like us deleting our Facebook app from our phone. Eventually, reinstall it and go. Yeah, back in about to twenty-four it, hours, that yeah, would take exactly. <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, what was your take on the movie, The Social Dilemma? Because I, mean, I know there's been a lot of buzz, both positive and negative, and even Facebook issued a statement about it, which is kind of a big deal. Mm-hmm. But what were your thoughts on it, just in general? about its its uh, veracity and sort of how it actually works in real life and the potential pitfalls and, and downfalls of it. But yeah, what was your overall take of the movie and just in general? I mean, I think having most of my friends in marketing and having started my career in social media, I think when you put this on and you start watching it, there's nothing new. There's no information where you're like, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know they were tracking that. I didn't know that I could be targeted for specific products or I could be targeted for specific ads. There's no new information. I think the real, like I would say, scare tactic of the film is more around the people that they're interviewing. Because generally, there have been these kinds of documentaries before. We've all seen them. They're probably still on Netflix. But I think this one in particular is gaining so much traction because it's all old executives at Facebook and Instagram and Pinterest and Twitter. So that's who they're talking to are these old executives. So while there's no new information, it's a little bit harder to hear when it's coming from the people who actually built these algorithms. That being said, there is no other opinion you can take from the film other than, oh, (laughs) and I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit of all of the people they interview are prior more historical executives at these companies. So Mm -hmm. people who've left people who've, I don't know what their career background is, if they were fired or if they left the company purposefully, or if they quit for specific reasons, they don't go too much into that for most of the people they talk to, but there is no one currently working at these platforms that they talk to in the film. So while you get to hear the mistakes that these Silicon Valley tech leaders have made, you don't really hear what's being done to fix it. And I think that was a really good point you made, Ralph, in terms of there's no opposite side of the spectrum in this. And I think that's just historically coming from a J school background in terms of studying journalism for four years in college and actually studying my minor was political science. So studying that the first rule that you learn day one of journalism 101 in college is you have to get both sides of the story. You have to get both sides of the story, which is certainly not how things seem to function now. But (laughs) I think in any kind of unbiased news source, you need to hear both sides of the story before you can make a credible opinion or make a credible any kind of credible claim, which is, I think, what's left out in the film in particular. Yeah, I mean, we're call- calling it a film, we're calling it a movie. It was <laughs> Trying sort to of, avoid the word documentary. <laughs> yeah, it was cast as a documentary, but usually in a documentary, there's opposing sides. Mm -hmm. So, and there was no opposing side. There was nobody saying, well, Facebook and and social media in general is doing this. And there was no counter to that, which is fine Mm -hmm. because this was 
this was a movie. <laughs> this is not yeah. really a documentary. I guess it's a documentary because it's true. There was a storyline that kind of went through the entire thing, especially sort of the effect of social media on a couple of different actors, you know, that were cast in the role. But the point was, which was very powerful, it was a very Mm -hmm. powerful subtext that reinforced what this one-sided argument really was. And I'm not dismissing what they're saying. We'll get into that on this show. There's some valid points here, but the point is like for it to be a documentary, you really do need a counterpoint. You need what we used to call in the pharmaceutical industry is fair balance. You need to say something great and then a legitimate claim. And then also say like, all right, this is the other side of the the -hmm. coin, so to speak. So usually when there's a documentary and we were talking about this before we hit record, like if you watch like an episode of Nova or you watch, Mm -hmm. you know, nature on Netflix or Mm -hmm. something like just pick your documentary on Netflix, there's usually somebody talking about something in either a negative or a positive way. And then the opposite viewpoint comes Mm -hmm. on. It's almost like in 60 Minutes where they have the story about the guy who embezzled $64 billion. (laughs) Then they bring him on or some of his associates to try and defend Mm himself. And maybe when he comes on and he's stumbling and bumbling, you're like, yeah, he's absolutely guilty. (laughs) But then maybe he comes on and gives a legitimate reason. Well, you know, I lost the money and it somehow it landed in a bank account in (laughs) St. Moritz or wherever it happens to be in Switzerland. The point is, is like you're at least presenting two sides of the argument, which the social dilemma doesn't do. So do keep that in mind when you're watching the film itself. But I found it highly entertaining. I I really did think that I wasn't going to be super surprised with what it presented, Mm -hmm. but I did think it reinforced to me the the deleterious and the negative effect potentially on kids. Mm -hmm. And whether that was manufactured through the villain of Facebook and social as like every good movie has a villain. Let's mm-hmm. not kid ourselves. There's Darth Vader, you know, in the Star Wars. And you can pick uh, a thousand other examples. The point is, is like that is a good counter to what's going on in the movie. But I do think that the effect on kids, especially really young kids and how it impacts their the way that they think about themselves, their self-esteem, how they derive their self-worth oftentimes from likes and shares or lack Mm -hmm. of likes was disturbing for me. And having had kids that are now in college and are over 18 and they self-regulate themselves, there was a long period of time where we really were concerned about social media. And as parents may be listening to this show here, it's something that you as a parent should be concerned about as well, for sure. I don't have the perspective of a parent, but even just working working with kids through volunteer groups in and around Austin, I've had friends who've worked with young girls in particular, as young as in fifth grade, who are deriving their self-worth and self-esteem out of Instagram likes. And I think jokes are made a lot within the millennial generation of how different social media is for Gen Z versus when we were growing up. But I think that's for with every generation. But I think it's really scary when you sit down with girls as young as eight, nine, 10 years old, and they're talking about how they have to like, save photos as blackmail in case someone posts an unflattering photo of them when they're only nine or 10 years old, which is honestly, that's horrifying and shouldn't be what kids have to think about. So from that perspective, I think it's really scary. I think as an adult on these platforms, you like you and I said, there's nothing that surprised us when we watch this. 
But kids don't really have that filter in terms of like, oh, I'm being targeted for this because I had a conversation about XYZ and now I'm getting targeted for this tennis shoe or it or I'm getting fed certain influencers on my Instagram account because I searched for something on on my Google search and my history is on. So I think as an adult, you understand what's happening within the algorithm. But as a kid, that doesn't, you're not computing that. You're just computing of you don't look like a celebrity or you don't look like the girl next to you. Or I think for, yeah, obviously for younger girls, I think it's really difficult. Ryan even uses an example for, I think Ryan used the example in our last episode, actually, of the Dove campaign of one, 10 or out of every 10 tweets, like one of them about self-esteem, like nine out of 10 or women or something. I, I don't remember the complete statistic, which isn't very helpful, but I think it's harder when you're growing up and you're seeing these unattainable pictures mm-hmm. that are edited and you don't know what's real anymore. And I think that's really hard when you're still trying to grow up in a world where things look different than reality, which is really scary. Yeah. Yeah. It's frightening. And, and never having the experience of raising adolescent females, I've only <laughs> got two boys, but I do realize, and I do see that as a huge challenge for social media, for my immediate family, mm-hmm. as well as friends of mine. And I certainly struggled with it as a parent, you know, even with two boys, especially with the rise of Snapchat, which is really the thing that really pissed me off more than anything <laughs> else, the disappearing post thing. But I think this does bring up a good point that there has been studies, and you can Google search this, maybe we can even leave some links to the show notes. Yeah. And in the section of the film actually describes this, that highlighted statistics on depression, anxiety, even suicide rates Mm -hmm. for teenagers that correlate with the rise of social media. Mm -hmm. Was that in direct proportion to the rise of social media or is that sort of a circumstantial rise? We don't exactly know, but there's an article that we'll we'll post in the show notes that emphatically Mm -hmm. states, yes, this does have a direct correlation to negative body image, to Mm -hmm. depression, to thoughts of suicide because of how many likes you get or the kinds of things that you're talking about, like bad photo blackmail, which could be considered a form of cyber bullying to a a degree. So I think all these platforms have the potential to be abused and to be misused. I think what was very interesting in some of the the folks who had the guy who had actually invented the like button he was on the in the movie and he said we originally just thought of as like a really nice thing and now people are being measured by how many likes or how many not so many likes <laughs> they have on a post and they derive their self-worth from it and that was never the intention and i have to kind of believe that was the case but the the thing is is that as a parent you really do, and I'm not going to get on my soapbox here, but you do have to set rules. You do have to mm-hmm. set limitations for your kids. And I see this all the time. It's like when we used to go out to dinner back way back in the day, <laughs> you would see parents and kids like a family at a restaurant and three of the kids would all be on their phones and the parents would be talking. Mm-hmm. And we never allowed that as a family. Mm-hmm. Like you could never, ever bring your phone to the dinner table, whether we went out to restaurant or wherever it was, 
we even had days and my kids still hate me for this is that we would go on like drives down Cape and go for a hike or whatever. And I would tell everybody to put their phones in the box and in the front or like in the glove box Mm -hmm. so that we would actually have conversations and we would have limitations as to how much they could actually be online every single day. All that went out the window when they turned 18. (laughs) But the point is, is we had restrictions. We had guidelines for our kids as hard as it was. And I know you as a parent, if you're listening, you have kids and you struggle with this. It's really hard to do it. Mm -hmm. But I do think that you have to stick to a line and to not make it a line in the sand, but an actual line. And I know there's parents that have done this really well in limiting the exposure to these channels because I do think that there is a negative effect to it. I do think that kids start to derive their self-worth from likes or lack of likes or all the other things that can go on in the platform. And it's something that you need to talk about as a parent and with your kids as much as you possibly can, even if they don't want to listen to you. I've also found this, Amanda, it's (laughs) like even when you're talking to them and they don't look like they're listening, they actually are listening. So... (laughs) And it does sink in. Mm-hmm. And these kids, they need boundaries and they thrive on it and they actually gain a certain level of comfort from it. So mm-hmm. it's a hard thing to do, especially with social media the way it is now. But as a parent, I think you do have to set some boundaries for sure. Yeah. And I think that I just think that's a good point in terms of the personal use of social media and how that can be really scary versus the use of the platforms in particular as a product and as a business and using it for purchases and not just for self-esteem purposes or documentation of your life. And I think when you view it more as like a scrapbook for that, you'll keep down the road in a personal perspective, it becomes like, for me, more fun as an adult because it's mm-hmm. not about trying to gain engagement. Right. Yeah. My engagement metrics. But I think it's more, it has to be more for yourself than for other people, which I think is hard for kids to determine. But then it functions in such a different way when you're using it from like a business perspective because the platform is just honestly, it's, I, I don't want to say completely different. It's obviously the same platform, but it functions so differently when you're using it for a purpose other than personal. And I think most of the, obviously most of the platforms are used for business purposes at this point, except for kids. And I think that's kind of where the scary points come in of like, well, wait a minute. It's also for, it's a personal and professional platform. Whereas a platform like LinkedIn, which they didn't talk about, which is pretty funny, is strictly professional. It's the platforms that are both personal and professional that are having a hard time, I think. Yeah, it's really interesting because to your point and the reason why we're on Facebook and Instagram and the reason why we have an agency that's devoted like the vast majority of its ad spend to Facebook Mm -hmm. and all its partner channels. And obviously we we have other social media channels, but that's the biggie Mm -hmm. because there's four billion plus monthly active users. Why wouldn't you want to be there? That's what, like half the world's population last checked. So you've got a captive audience there, but Mm -hmm. as a platform for advertising and furthering your business, I still don't think there's any better platform in the world right now Mm -hmm. with its broad scope, with its targeting capabilities. And yes, the reason why we were drawn towards it as an agency back in 2013 is because of all these things, because Mm -hmm. of the targeting capabilities, because of the retargeting capabilities, because of all the tools like dynamic product ads, and now dynamic creative, all these tools that they create to help power businesses grow and scale is the reason why we 
are on the platform. And mm -hmm. yeah, between Google and Facebook, you pretty much got the internet covered yes. right there. You can grow a very nice business. But on the flip side, I don't think we have a single customer account that targets anyone below the age of 18. Yeah. Seriously, because we think like, even if they're below that, like they still have to ask their parents, they don't have yep. a credit card. Like it's all about having a credit card. Mm -hmm. So I would say the vast majority of our spend is probably between 25 and up. Oh yeah. And so it eliminates this whole sort of adolescent, early twenties. Like we don't want, like my son doesn't have any money. Like he's not buying anything <laughs> in his Facebook feed. Who are we kidding? Like maybe yeah. other kids will, but it's almost like all the data sort of points to from a business perspective is to target older adults who I do think use the platform in a less manipulative way than perhaps mm -hmm. these examples that were done in this movie slash documentary. Yeah. Unless, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think what Facebook is doing right now will also, I, I think, help it be slightly less manipulative, mm -hmm. considering that they are about to remove political ads completely from, point. from the platform. So even as that comes off the platform, which um, assuming it's, is it coming off Instagram? It has to be coming off Instagram too, since they're yep. owned. So if they're coming off both of the two major platforms, hopefully that'll make it slightly less manipulative from an adult standpoint as well. Because I think from my perspective, and yeah, obviously we're a little biased. My career is based around Google. <laughs> so yeah. optimizing around the algorithm of Google. So which there were actually, I don't even know if we mentioned that there were also Google executives who were That's true, there were. this as well. Actually, that was the main, Tristan Harris was the design ethicist at Google. So he was the main character, I think, in this film that they were following around. So I think, yeah, obviously my opinion is probably a little biased because that's how, you know, working around Google and its algorithm is what I'm passionate about because I find it fascinating and interesting and marketing in general, I think, is kind of based around these tactics. <laughs> Well, there is no question that when it comes to influence and persuasion in digital marketing, no one, and I mean no one, commands more respect than Dr. Robert Cialdini. If you have never read his books, Influence and Persuasion, I swear you are missing so much in your digital marketing, not only as an influencer and an advertiser, but as just a great marketer. And that's why I'm so excited to invite you to a free webinar where he'll be sharing his latest insights on new e-commerce strategies. Now, alongside Dr. Cialdini, you'll learn from Bass Wilders and the authors of Reputation King, my buddy Scott Branley and DJ Sprague. Attendees will absolutely be able to understand exactly how to gain a competitive edge in the marketplace by leveraging online reputation management. Now, that's something that we haven't talked about here on this show all that much. And it's more reason for you to register for the webinar here, which is completely free over at reputationking.com forward slash PT. So join us on April 18th from 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern. That's 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Pacific for you West Coasters by registering at reputationking.com forward slash PT. Once again, that's reputationking.com forward slash PT. Cialdini has been a huge influence on me. And I can't wait to see how his new e-commerce strategies resonate with you and how they affect your business in a positive way using reputation management. Make sure that you register 
for the April 18th free webinar at reputationking.com forward slash PT. Both social media channels are based on algorithms. Yeah. Really, to show you more things that you have an affinity towards. Mm-hmm. And yes. yeah, I mean, you go onto YouTube, like I'll go onto YouTube tonight. I'm like, oh, there's these new videos of Eddie Van Halen documentaries or whatever it is, because I was watching those and I'm like, I'm interested in that in that content. Mm-hmm. Likewise, when I go over to Netflix, I log into there's four people on our account. I'll click on my name <laughs> and I'll go in. It'll show me more like documentaries or stuff yes. about like Nova and Frontline and like that's the kind of stuff. So the algorithm in that perspective, those are all algorithms. And that's the big thing that the social dilemma talks about is that there is this, they circle the wagons on the things that you really like and that are really attractive to you and get engagement. And then they show you more of it. Mm-hmm. Now that unto itself is from my perspective, especially as an advertiser, as an owner of an ad agency is a great thing. Yeah. However, <laughs> absolutely. It helps getting your message in front of the right people. The targeting is amazing, but it's also from a personal standpoint. When I go on a Netflix or Google or even on Facebook, I'm seeing content that's relevant to me and that's useful mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. I do think the social media channels, especially Facebook, it tips the scales in the opposite direction mm-hmm. when it comes to like polarization and mm-hmm. fractionalism, especially something that's really happened as of this recording right up until election day. Mm-hmm. And it's going to continue that way. And I think Facebook, from my perspective, one of the things that I was like shaking my head, yep, I got mm-hmm. the the kid thing without a doubt which we've already hit on, but the polarization, if you are pro-Republican or pro-Democrat or whatever your political beliefs are, as soon as you hover over those posts or click or like or comment or share, you're going to be seeing more of what you already believe in from a political standpoint. And that can be self-reinforcing. And -hmm. I think there is a lot, especially on the opposite side of the coin, politically, from my perspective, there is a lot of manipulation that happens. Now, it, the truth could be said on the other side is that like on the, the more liberal side of the, the coin, there could be manipulation that happens there, but you'll have to take it with a grain of salt. You have to say, all right, you have to even fact check, mm-hmm. like go to Snopes.com and check some of the things that you actually see. Mm-hmm. But the point is, is there is that self-reinforcing behavior, which I believe has helped lead to an incredible polarization politically in the United States. And I do think that social media play, has played a key role in that polarization. Politically, that's more of like a personal use of the platform. And I hate that. Like, I hate getting any kind of like political ad on my, well, which is actually, you know, very ironic. Like I said, you know, I, originally right. in college, that was my minor as political science. I found it fascinating. It's interesting. You don't like it now, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think when I'm getting targeted for headphones that I was looking at three weeks ago, I'm like, oh, this is helpful. This looks, yeah. <laughs> this looks. That's right. Um, I do want to ex- buy that. Exactly. Yeah. what uh, Exactly. Like what I wanted or, oh, I was just talking about this. This is exactly the thing I need for whatever event I'm having or trip I'm taking or whatever I have to do. And I find from a business perspective, I think it's extremely helpful. And I understand that I'm also being targeted based off my interests. So my algorithms are perfectly curated these days. (laughs) I feel very, I get a lot of enjoyment off of the social platforms these days because 
Well, one, we've been quarantined, so we've been on them more. So <laughs> right. they That's are true. perfectly to like tuned in to exactly what I want to see. There's a convenience uh, factor. You're yes. like, <laughs> and then that self reinforces more usage of the platform. Exactly. Which Facebook says there is no addiction quotient to their platform. Well, I don't think Facebook was created to create like social media addiction, but, (laughs) and they've actually done, I think a pretty good job overall of trying to highlight meaningful social interactions and deprioritize other things like viral videos and the like. And they have actually decreased the number of hours that people overall uh, spend on the platform. I do think that swung the other way in the last three to six months because people are home, they're isolated, Mm -hmm. they're there with their phones, they're going to be on there more. We certainly saw purchase behavior skyrocket in April, Mm -hmm. May, June leveled out. Now we're sort of in an interesting period now in October, November. But the point is, is yeah, there's a convenience factor in having things that you like in the newsfeed where I find it really disturbing though and I see this through my immediate family on my wife's side, is that there's self-reinforcing beliefs of either stuff that is completely false, mm-hmm. conspiracy theories with no basis in fact. Yep. And that stuff you click and like on one story, all of a sudden you see more mm-hmm. and more. And then that leads to just misinformation and disinformation. And I think that is something that I don't think Facebook has done a great job with. Even though they say they have, we still see it all the time. I mm-hmm. do think that post-November 3rd, cleaning up and getting rid of any political mm-hmm. ads is a step in the right direction. I, personally, I've thought that their political ad policy has been horrific, horrible. Mm-hmm. And I think they need to get rid of that 5% of their overall revenue for this year and just like wipe the slate clean. And I think they're making steps in that direction. I also think there's probably a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes politically that we don't know anything about pressure from investors and all these other things that we don't deal with as users. But I think they have made steps in the right direction here to try and clean that up when it comes to misinformation. But yeah, we'll have to see how this all plays out. At the end of the day, you're in charge of your newsfeed, right? Mm -hmm. You can very easily, and I'm holding my hand up in the air, pretending I'm holding an iPhone, like Mm -hmm. put it down. Yeah. Like you can do it. And I do it on the weekends. Like Mm -hmm. I try to do like Sunday, no phone. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I've reduced my hours on Facebook and Instagram. Not that I was there all that much anyway. Mm -hmm. I just, I don't know. It's like, I just don't really care about like what everybody else is doing and how people think like what I'm doing is cool or not cool. It's like, maybe I'm just old school that way, Amanda. But it's like, we have control over it. You can put the damn thing down if you want. Yeah, I think you can put it down. And like I said, my usage has definitely gone up in quarantine. But I also feel like when you're in the industry, you have a tendency to want to use it less personally when you're You're working on it day in and day out. I know, I think I'm pretty sure Shannon, who we talked to a few weeks ago, she's like, I spend a lot of time on Twitter personally, where Twitter is actually the... Um, platform that we use the least at Digital Marketer. So she doesn't really use any of the other platforms a lot personally that she has to be on day in and day out. But she uses the platform that she's not on the most that she doesn't have to be on professionally. Because I think there's like an... I don't really want to look at this platform for eight hours a day and then another eight hours when I'm not working. So I think that I remember my social media 
when I was working as a like community manager slash social media manager in the first stages of my career that I almost completely stopped my social overload. Oh yeah. It's just like a complete overload. So I think it is pretty interesting to look at usage marketers in particular, because I think there's such that sense of like, okay, this is work. It's a separation of work and life, right? Like a work-life balance. And when your work is also the social media platform, it becomes infinitely more difficult to like decipher what is work and what's not, right? Yeah, I think you're probably far more aware of it. And I don't really feel like I'm missing out even so. And I think maybe that's the message here is like even putting it away on the weekends or just not doing it at night and trying to spend like quality time talking to people like Mm -hmm. in my family instead of being on my phone. Mm -hmm. And even though my kids have now left, it's like telling them to put their phone (laughs) down, like putting limitations on yourself, like having self-control around the platform. It still is you that controls it. Facebook doesn't control you. And I think one of the things that they did mention in the, we're now going to say it's the documentary or in the <laughs> film, as it were, film. is that you, the Facebook user, are the product. That's actually mm. not the case. Yes, it is a user-generated platform with, you know, with the network effect. Mm-hmm. We all wouldn't be on it if everybody else wasn't on it, for <laughs> sure. So the user is obviously important. But let's never forget the fact that Facebook's reason for being there and the thing that derives their earnings in their company is not selling your data. And we can talk about that, but it's advertising. It's Mm -hmm. not you, the product selling your data as the advertiser. It's about selling ads to people like myself and to digital marketer Mm -hmm. and to the thousands of advertisers that listen to this show every single week. Yeah. And I think you brought up a really, another really great point in terms of what the data actually is. Yeah. <laughs> and I think we sometimes forget when you watch, you know, a documentary like this where they're talking about how they're taking your data and you're stealing your data, but the data is what you've literally written yourself onto Facebook. So, if you weren't openly publicly providing the information into the social media platforms, then Facebook's not going to have access to it. It has access to your interests. And that's how we target as marketers in terms of like, oh, they like the yoga studio down the street and they were within my zip code because you've provided your address to Facebook. So it's nothing nothing that Facebook doesn't already know. As or any other platform. Or any other platform. Yeah, <laughs> right. exactly. Yeah. You have the ability to allow what information you want you want businesses to be able to access and you can change it accordingly. If I went in and I deleted all of my interests from Facebook and then put in a hundred different bands that I liked or a hundred different movies that I liked, I'd probably start getting some pretty different ads because I'm telling, you know, advertisers that you're allowed to use this information. And, you know, that's why you have the terms of service agreements that you have to click through anytime you, you get onto these social platforms, but it's nothing that's like not giving them my bank account number. And we honestly don't even know who people are. They're all like mostly interest-based targeting. And even if I do know that a person likes uh, a certain movie, I don't actually know who they are. (laughs) Yeah, because it's all under this computer coding called hashing. So Facebook doesn't know who you are either. I think they do as a user ID. I mean, that's sort of at a deeper level, but we're not talking about your credit card data, your social security (laughs) number, your checking account number. Nope. And I have this conversation all the time with people, man. It's like, oh, well, they have all your data. They know everything about you. I'm like, yeah, they know that I like Metallica and I live in Sagamore <laughs> Beach and I'm married to Jennifer Sorrenti and like who my friends are. 
Yeah. And lots of people on Facebook who really aren't my friends. They're just like Facebook friends. But the point is, is like, that's the extent of it. Yep. There's no security data in there. They're not stealing my social security number. But like when we talk about data breaches, and I think Facebook got, you know, a real supposed black eye on this mm-hmm. a few years back for a data breach. It was user ID data. <laughs> it was not credit card data or secure information. Like just look up and we'll put links in the show notes, the mm-hmm. five biggest data breaches of the last 20 years. We're talking about social security numbers. We're talking about credit card information, like stuff that can really do damage, that can lead to identity theft, Mm -hmm. that can lead to unwanted charges. Like those are big deal things. And Facebook's quote unquote data breach was nothing of the kind. It was things that you like, friends of yours. In the case of this Cambridge Analytical thing, it was- Friends of Friends, which made it a much larger breach than the, mm-hmm. I believe it was 180,000 people that they actually pulled out through the SDK. The point is, is that, yeah, uh, like who your friends are, that's the data that was stolen, so mm-hmm. to speak. It was just taken outside of the platform. Did it happen a lot uh, in those days back in 2015, 2016? It might have. But the point is, is like you gave your data to Facebook for convenience. You mm-hmm. give your data to Netflix when you log in so you can watch better movies that you like. <laughs> give your data to YouTube so you can watch other videos that you might have you know, watched previously or related to the stuff that you watched previously. So we're not talking about like real security issues here. We're talking about data that does help with the user experience. And oh, by the way, as an advertiser, that data is very helpful in targeting mm-hmm. for our customers the right type of user with the right type of message with the right product. Yeah. And it's, yeah, you're giving your data. I think you made the excellent point of you're giving your data for convenience. Like I will happily tell you my interests so that I can get the exact shows that I know I will like <laughs> pop up on my Netflix when I want to relax at night. Absolutely. Um, so you don't have to think. That's yeah, convenience. That sounds great. <laughs> Thank you, data, says yes. Amanda. She's kicking her feet back with the dog. <laughs> so yeah. So I mean, I, I think that you know the social dilemma is is it really is it it's a really good movie. We're saying it's a movie. Yeah. You know, it's a documentary. Say what you will, but definitely check it out. I think if for anybody who is involved in these social platforms in the least bit. And if you're a listener of the show, you probably, chances are you are. <laughs> so I would highly recommend watching it and formulate your own opinion about it. We just took it from a professional perspective, having done this for now, what, 15 plus years now, <laughs> and looking back on, especially the last six to seven years, the in- incredible growth of social platforms. It's a really interesting movie to watch. And yeah, there's been some interesting discussions online, pro <laughs> and against. And It's amazing that Facebook came out with sort of a quasi press release to counter all the arguments Mm -hmm. and, you know, rightfully so, because it miscast them in a villainous role here, which I don't think is necessarily fair. I don't think it's inaccurate, Hmm. but I don't think it's necessarily fair. Agreed. So, yeah, so that's this week's show for all the uh, resources and all links. We mentioned quite a few things here. We'll throw those in the show notes over at digitalmarketer.com forward slash podcast. This has been episode 281. Amanda Powell, stay warm out in Colorado. Do my best. (laughs) (laughs) And until next week, see ya. listening to Perpetual Traffic, 
For more information and to get the resources mentioned in this episode, visit digitalmarketer.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you.